Now, in one sense, the Holy Spirit occupies a secondary place in the New Testament. Center stage belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit is no mere extra in the cast, waiting in the wings. He is the third person of the triune God, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. And five times in Jesus' farewell discourse, our Lord speaks of God, the Holy Spirit, coming into the world once Jesus dies and returns to the Father. Because that's when his ministry, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, begins in earnest. And the role of the Holy Spirit is essential. He's an integral part of the divine plan of redemption. He is as essential to our salvation, brothers and sisters, as the Father and the Son. In Jesus' farewell discourse, our Lord is preparing the disciples for his bodily absence. And he does so by relating to them the good things the Spirit will do when he comes into the world. His holy work, as he stands in Jesus' place, as salvation history moves forward along its God-ordained path, and the elect of God are saved. And what is the Spirit's work? Look at me the five points we have in our bulletin. Number one, the triune God will make himself present to the disciples of Jesus by the spirit of truth. And he will indwell God's people forever. The spirit paraclete will testify to Jesus. The spirit paraclete will teach the disciples about Jesus. The spirit paraclete will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin Righteousness and judgment. He does so because he is returning to the Father, because Jesus is returning to the Father and no longer exercises that role himself. And number five, the Spirit paraclete will glorify the Son. So there you have it. That is our sermon in a nutshell, folks, but it's a big nut. There's a lot there. Uh, and please note, I'm using the personal pronoun he or him. In reference to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the triune Godhead. The eternal spirit is not an it. He is not just a, a force or something. But sometimes uh, our speech and our prayers aren't as precise on that point as they need to be. Okay, look with me at the big picture at the top of your bulletin. This is our pole star, New City. Uh, our guide for the next 45 minutes. If you get lost, come back here. Big picture. This sermon will answer the question, what is God, the Holy Spirit, doing, both in the rebellious world and in the believers he draws out of the world, now that Jesus has died, risen from death, and ascended to the Father? And in answering that question, we're not looking just to increase our, our theological knowledge, as important as that is, but to change our lives, right? Uh, we want to worship God in the knowledge of his gracious new covenant provisions. And in light of all that God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And this text, this sermon, I pray, will move our affections. By God's grace, it will move our hearts Godward. In adoration and in gratitude as this becomes clearer and clearer. But here's the thing. The person of the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit into the world, the office of the Spirit, that is all gloriously, wonderfully complex teaching. Uh, the whole storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is predicated on the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world. That he might indwell God's covenant people for eternity. What we're reading about today, the Spirit's Advent, which transpires in Jerusalem at Pentecost 50 days hence, is one of the key moments in the whole history of God redeeming a sinful people for himself. Along with Jesus' death and resurrection, it's the hinge upon which the door of salvation turns. But how many times have you 
used the map feature on your cell phone, but you were zoomed in too close. Yes, the dot was there, it was blinking in the correct location, but you needed to zoom out a bit to get the full picture of where you were, get your bearings in relation to everything else. Well, that's what I want to try to do today. By God's grace, I want this sermon to pinpoint us precisely on the salvation historical map while zooming out enough to show us where we've come from, where God is going, and what God the Father and God the Son are accomplishing in sending to us God the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Uh, To indwell us, to teach us, to testify to Jesus, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to bring glory to the eternal Son. It's a tall order, and I've done my best, honestly, <laughs> to simplify things and to make this flow as easily as I know how. But the various texts that we're considering this morning are rich. They are deep, gloriously so. So you'll need to follow along in your Bibles closely. You should have your Bible open on your lap or on your phone, whatever. All right, first things first. When, when does this teaching occur? Passover. Jesus is crucified Friday morning. This all takes place Thursday evening, which means these are some of Jesus' final words to his disciples in John's gospel. Chapters 14 through 16 is commonly called the farewell discourse, and it's the most theologically dense portion of this book. Jesus is speaking now with men who have lived with him for three years. They've heard his teaching. They've witnessed all of his miracles. They've seen God perfectly displayed in all of Jesus' words and actions, and they love him. And so the apostles are deeply troubled by Jesus' announcement that he's leaving them, chapter 1333. And where he's going, they cannot follow, chapter 1336. I'm leaving, where I'm going, you cannot follow. They've just heard this. However, he's not going to leave them alone. And so in John 14... 15 to 17, we come to the first explicit mention of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' farewell discourse. Jesus says this, this is John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and will be in you. It's here we have the first explicit mention of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' farewell discourse, the first of several, all of which in the original Greek refer to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. Uh, What the NIV translates as advocate. In verse 16, uh, the Greek word behind that is paraclete. Uh, have you ever heard that word before? Maybe like in an old sermon or something, um, or an old hymn. Uh, that, that's a word, sort of like Melchizedekian priesthood. Uh, we don't hear it too often. We probably should, though. Uh, it's, it's a rough transliteration of the Greek word parakletos. But no English word has exactly the same range of meaning as that Greek word. Uh, what's called the semantic range of a word. It's quite broad as far as parakletos is concerned. It's sort of like our word in English, cool. Um, So cool means all sorts of things in all sorts of contexts in English. So we might say, Eddie is one cool dude. Or, Eddie feels rather cool, not warm. Or, Eddie isn't cool with the idea of higher taxes. He would prefer a different policy. Or, Eddie, would you like some cake? No, thanks. I'm cool. Right? Same word, broad semantic range. And it's the same with paraclete. Depending on the context, it's often translated comforter, counselor, we just sang that, advocate, or helper. And it's not strictly a religious word. A Greek speaker could say, I was feeling down, but Chris, the paraclete, really helped and comforted me. It's also found in legal context. A paraclete may be a legal advisor or a counselor, even a prosecuting attorney. 
And Don Carson notes that virtually all these functions are explicitly ascribed to the Holy Spirit in Jesus' farewell discourse, which is probably why the term paraclete is used, because the Holy Spirit is engaged in such a wide range of activity on behalf of Jesus' disciples. The Holy Spirit helps believers in their witness and strengthens and comforts them by his presence. The Holy Spirit is a prosecuting attorney. He exposes the sin of the world. But what Jesus is really concerned with here is outlining to the 11 disciples the arrangements that he's made to help them during his absence. Jesus is returning to the glory that he shared with the Father from eternity past. He's going away. These men need divine help, these 11 apostles. And in our first point, Jesus is assuring his disciples that they will continue to experience God's divine presence. Jesus' departure isn't going to deprive them of that blessing. Far from it. Look with me at your bulletin. Point number one. The triune God will make himself present to the disciples of Jesus by the spirit of truth, and he will indwell God's people forever. Simply put, Jesus is saying in this text, yes, I am leaving. I'm going back to the Father to share in the glory with him from eternity past. But if I leave, this is what you get. And I'll be spending more time on this point and point number four than points two, three, and five combined. All right, so the time that I've allotted to my points is disproportionate. Bear that in mind. Don't freak out as the minutes tick away, okay? All right, let's dive in. Jesus begins by saying in chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, do you love Jesus? If you love me, keep my commands. And this is a theme we see throughout the passage. Look at 1421. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Not just the one who's gushing with emotional sentiment. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. 1423. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So let me ask. Wives, do you love your husband? Husbands, do you love your wife? If so, that means there are certain entailments, right? Uh, There are certain things we do for our spouse as a result of our love for them. And the reality of our love is actually proved by doing those things. Likewise, there are certain things we would never do. And because we love our spouse, the reality of our love is proved by not doing those things. And it's the same thing in the marriage relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Obedience to Jesus is an entailment of our love for Jesus. The reality of our love for Christ is proved by our obedience. Jesus' true followers will love him. We will obey him. And for his part, Jesus secures for us from the Father... The father who denies his son nothing, another paraclete. Someone who will stand in Jesus' place once Jesus has returned to glory. 1416. And I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate, another paraclete to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. And then Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, I read a veritable stack of commentaries in preparation for this sermon, and they all went in different interpretive directions with that verse. Uh, It's possible to suppose that Jesus, in verse 18, is talking about his return after his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And that does appear to be the case in just the next verse, in verse 19. Or, it's possible, he's referring to his return at the end of the age, the second advent. I will come to you, like on on the clouds of heaven, on that last day. But, I think it's more likely he's talking about being personally present with his disciples by means of the Spirit. 
Uh, that seems to make the most sense because its connection is forged all throughout this passage. We see this time and again. Brothers and sisters, the reality of our love for Jesus, as proved by our obedience to Jesus, is consistently connected with the presence of the triune God. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So do you see, the Father and the Son both take up residence in the believer. How is that possible? By means of the indwelling Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead are involved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, just Think how far we've progressed. How does John's gospel begin? What do we read in the prologue? Chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? That's staggering. It's so wonderful. What an amazing blessing of divine self-disclosure. The one who is God and who was with God in the beginning, the eternal word, he takes on human flesh, he becomes a man, and then he reveals himself to his fallen creation. Jesus dwells among his people. But now, in John 14, we're being brought one step further, aren't we? It's not that just God reveals himself to us and lives among us. He takes up residence within us. He makes his home with us. We're a temple of the triune God, for the triune God. Jesus promises in chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, paraclete, to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So there is one person of the Trinity, the spirit of truth. Verse 23 Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. There's the other two. Father and the Son. Beloved, this is theological truth we want operating in our understanding at a very, very basic, basic level. The triune God makes himself present to the disciples of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of truth as he indwells us forever. Frankly... Modern Christians badly need a deepening consciousness of God's sacred presence within us. This privilege that's part of the blessing of the new age and part and parcel with eternal life and salvation that we already enjoy. God dwells within us. The triune God makes himself present to the disciples of Jesus by the spirit of truth as he indwells us forever. Amen. Praise God. What a blessing that is. And notice how Jesus says what he says. 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete to help you. Which means Jesus is the first paraclete. Right? He promises to send the Holy Spirit another paraclete to help us. That means, in many respects, the person of the Holy Spirit serves as a substitute for Jesus. In some sense, Jesus and the Spirit are paracletes of the same kind. Which makes perfect sense, because the Holy Spirit does many of the things which Jesus himself did during his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit will teach God's people, guiding them into all truth. 16.13. That's the very thing that Jesus did. The Holy Spirit will bear witness to Jesus. So did Jesus. He bore witness to himself during his public ministry. 8.14, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of its sin. Jesus did the same thing. Which doesn't mean the functions of the Holy Spirit and the Son are identical. No, each person of the Godhead assumes some roles not assumed by the other two. Only the person of God the Son incarnates, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. Only the person of the Son dies and rises again, right? Sometimes you hear 
misinformed Christians pray, Father, thank you for dying for us on the cross. That is totally wrong. The Son died on the cross. But on the other hand, Jesus was physically limited in space during his ministry, right? I mean, he was a man, so he could only be in one place at a time. If Jesus is in this place, that means he's not in that place. But the Holy Spirit doesn't have that limitation. He simultaneously indwells believers all over the world. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And by calling him the Spirit of truth, Jesus is pointing out that the paraclete communicates the truth, the truth that Jesus is. The Spirit comes to bear witness to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true bread from heaven, the true vine, the one who is full of grace and truth. But notice how our Lord closes off this section. In preparing his disciples for his departure and the Spirit's coming, he tells them that the world and they will relate to the Spirit differently. 14.17 The world cannot accept him, the Spirit of truth, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And this is very important to understand. The word world in John's gospel is actually a symbol for all that's in rebellion against God. All that's loveless, all that's disobedient, all that's selfish and sinful. So even when we read what may be the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's not an amazing truth because the world is so big and so God must love then lots and lots of people. No, it's amazing because of the world's badness. It's a testimony to the character of God. This ugly, sinful, rebellious world, this sewer of infidelity, this glut of endless selfishness, this habitation of violence, this promoter of greed, this maker of idols, this world God so loved that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1417, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. All right, then, well, who can receive the Spirit? The one who loves Jesus and obeys his teaching. And it's to this person alone that Jesus manifests himself by the Holy Spirit. 1415, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. 1421, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. 1423, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. But the person who does not love Jesus, the person who does not obey the teaching of Jesus, that person is part of the moral order that's in rebellion against God. And so they cannot accept the spirit of truth. The world and the disciples of Jesus relate to the spirit of truth differently. Verse 17, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. After Jesus has been exalted and has sent the spirit of truth, he will be in you. This is a blessing of Pentecost. Okay, let's take a step back. Let's zoom out a bit, New City. Now that Jesus has gone to be with the Father, what does God the Holy Spirit do in this world? What's his office? What's his function? What's his mission? Distilled to its essence is this. The Holy Spirit's role in this world is to glorify Jesus. His job is to magnify Christ. The Spirit's mission is Christ-centered. And Jesus reinforces this in our next three points, and I'm going to fly through this in ten minutes. The Spirit is sent into the world by Jesus. He testifies 
to Jesus. He teaches the disciples about Jesus, and he glorifies Jesus. So, number two in your bulletin. The spirit paraclete testifies to Jesus. We're now in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Verse 26. When the advocate, the paraclete, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, that is, out from the Father on mission, he will testify about me. Not this, that, and the other thing. When the paraclete comes, he will testify about me, Jesus says. And how does he do that? How does the Spirit testify about Jesus Christ? First, through the apostles, and then through the church. All right, so he's speaking to the 11 apostles here in chapter 15, 27. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, what we see here is that faithful witness to Jesus Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. Do you, what, what do we see in the book of Acts? The apostles, they went forth in the Spirit's power, testifying to all that God had accomplished in, in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the whole world. And then the first century church, just the regular old Christians, they did the same thing. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching... They went out into the world on witness, testifying to Christ in the Spirit's power. And now, it's us. The witness of the church, the testimony of the church, must always be about her Savior, Jesus Christ. We bring before the world the truth of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. His words, His works, his death and resurrection for sin with all its potential for blessing and judgment. That's our job. And the Spirit testifies to Jesus through the church. Corporately, all of us, and individually. Corporately, it's happening right now. But then individually as well. That's how it works. That's how God's kingdom advances across the world. But there's more. Point number three. The spirit paraclete will teach the disciples about Jesus. Flip back to chapter 14, 26. And, and this word is specifically directed to the 11 apostles. Jesus promises, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And will remind you of everything I have said to you. We see this again and again in John's gospel. Uh, how... The disciples, they fail to understand. They just, they fail to get Jesus and his ministry. It just goes over their head. Jesus says all sorts of stuff like, abide in me, the true vine, as I abide in the Father. And they sort of like nod their heads and go, oh yeah, yeah. Our, our rabbi, he says lots of deep, mysterious stuff. No clue what he just said, but it sounds pretty deep and, and religious. Um, but no clue, nor did they have any understanding of the ultimate significance of his actions. I mean, the, the cross on, a, on Easter Sunday scandalizes them. Which is why one of the Spirit's principal tasks after Jesus is glorified in the new situation introduced after his resurrection is to supernaturally remind the disciples of Jesus of his teaching and to help them grasp its biblical significance, how to connect it to the rest of salvation history. The Spirit is going to teach the apostles what all that deep, mysterious stuff meant that Jesus was always saying. And this is how the first witnesses, the 11 disciples, come to an accurate and a full understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's not because they're theological geniuses. It's because the Holy Spirit taught them. And then they, in turn, pass it on to the church. He reminded them of all that Jesus had said supernaturally. Which is, this is actually how we get our New Testaments, of course. Uh, but again, we see the Spirit's Christocentric mission, right? How it's like, the, the Spirit's mission is focused on Jesus Christ. The paraclete isn't bringing, you can kind of call it, qualitatively new revelation hot off the press. He's completing, he's filling out the revelation already bought, brought by Jesus himself. He's reminding them of what Jesus already taught them. 
Okay, flip forward to chapter 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. What these 11 men can't bear, what they can't integrate in their minds because they're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, is the notion of Jesus, their Messiah, their King, suffering and dying on a Roman cross. That just has to happen. They just have to live through it and come out the other side and see Jesus in his resurrected glory before the concept of a suffering Messiah kind of really gets nailed down in their thinking, in their theology. Because this central point, to which all the Bible testifies, presently eludes them. 16.13 But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus is saying, the spirit of truth, he will unpack the significance of my death and resurrection and how it fulfills Old Testament scripture. You're not going to have to guess at this or be theological geniuses. He will, he will do this for you. He will guide you into all the truth. And notice, just as Jesus, the eternal son, he's not independent of his father, but he speaks only what the father gives him to say. Remember chapter 5, 1630? So to the spirit. The spirit is not independent. The spirit never does his own thing. Verse 13b, he will not... Speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. In other words, he will tell you all that transpires in consequence of my death, resurrection, and exaltation. Verse 14. He will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And there again, we see the central aim of the Holy Spirit's ministry in New City. It's listed in our fifth point. I'm, just, I'm going to mention it here, and then it'll be over. <laughs> to bring glory to Jesus. The, the Spirit, paraclete, will glorify the Son, our fifth point. Just as the Son, by his ministry on earth, brought glory to the Father... So the central aim of the Spirit's ministry is to bring glory to Jesus. Verse 15. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That means there's no division in the Godhead. What the Father has, the Son has. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Guys, I know this is uh, thick stuff. It's a dense text. Uh, with lots that we need to kind of keep straight in our minds, but it's so important that we connect the dots and worshipfully appreciate what God has done for us in sending the Spirit in Jesus' absence. We want to worship God. We want to glorify Him in the knowledge of His gracious new covenant provisions. And in light of all God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. I mean, what a travesty it would be if we worshipped God like old covenant Jews. And that's as far as our thinking and our worship and our adoration and our understanding went. No, we're, we're, we're this side of the resurrection. We're, we're this side of Pentecost. That's huge. We need to be worshipping God in that light. And by God's grace, as these teachings become clearer and clearer, it's going to move our heart Godward in adoration and gratitude. Not just mere intellectual theological knowledge. Jesus is telling his apostles all the revelation bound up in my person and mission. The Holy Spirit will press home upon you. The Spirit will receive from me what he will teach you. And thus he will glorify me. And when the Spirit takes what he receives from me and makes it known to you, the 11 apostles, the content of what he receives from me will be nothing less than the revelation of God the Father himself. Because I, Jesus, I say only what the Father tells me to say, and I do only what the Father gives me to do. Beloved, the Spirit is sent into the world by Jesus. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. The Spirit teaches the disciples about Jesus. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit's office, his mission, his work is Christ-centered. It's Jesus-focused. Just as the Son. And if, if you leave here today knowing that one thing, praise God. Just as the Son glorifies the Father, and just as the Father is glorified in the Son, so the Spirit glorifies Jesus every time, all the time. The Spirit always points to Jesus and his redemptive work. He always shines a spotlight on Jesus and what God has accomplished in his death and resurrection, granting illumination and understanding to God's people. Therefore, a takeaway from this, do not ever, ever, even in subtle ways, think the Spirit will show you off to be someone of great spiritual attainments, of great holiness, of great biblical understanding of great gifting. No. The work of the Spirit in our life, His fruit, His empowerment, will always put Christ and His gospel on a pedestal, on full display. And your life, Christian, as the Spirit works in you, will always bring glory to Jesus. Just like the sinful woman who cried at Jesus' feet and then washed his feet with her hair, right? She was acting conspicuously in Simon the Pharisee's house that day, but she was acting conspicuously in a way that shone a spotlight on Jesus. The woman said nothing, but her actions, right? They spoke a thousand words, all of them pointing to the forgiveness of her many sins and her love and her gratitude for Jesus. And in the same way, the Spirit's work in our life will always, always showcase Christ and the truth of the gospel. So, when we sing songs during corporate worship, songs about what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, and there's great joy in our hearts, and our affections are deeply moved for Jesus and and his love, and so we're singing loudly. We can know that the Spirit is at work within us. That's the Spirit doing his Christ-exalting work. That's his fruit. And when we prove our love for Jesus by our obedience to his commands, that's the new covenant work of the Spirit. And when, God's, when we love God's people, Jesus' bride, people for whom Christ died, we're showing the Spirit. And when we evangelize the lost, when we testify to Jesus' love for sinners in the gospel... That is the Spirit testifying through us, shining a spotlight on this world's only Savior. And when we read God's Word, the Word that's all about Jesus and God redeeming a people in Him, when we believe, when we understand, when we repent, when we praise God for His mercy. That's the Spirit working through the Word, in conjunction with the Word, glorifying Jesus Christ. And all these things, the Holy Spirit is shining his holy spotlight on the second person of the Trinity. And in our church relationships, New City, this is how we're to talk to and pray for and relate to one another. Empowered by the Spirit, we glorify Jesus in all things. In all our conversations, all our fellowship, We strengthen our brothers and sisters by reminding them of Jesus' gospel in the power of the Spirit. We encourage our brothers and sisters by pointing them again and again to Jesus in the power of the Spirit. We gather together as the body of Christ week after week and turn on one another's thoughts towards Jesus and his cross in the power of the Spirit. We're all of us, all the time, spotlights for Christ. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that's his function. We're all the time, spotlights for Christ, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that's his function. That's his power at work within us. Okay. Our final point, the wrapping up point, but it's a doozy. Point number four. The spirit paraclete will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin 
righteousness, and judgment. He does so because Jesus is returning to the Father and no longer exercises that role himself. We're looking at chapter 16, 7 to 11. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. Where he's going, they cannot follow, and so they're filled with deep grief. So what the disciples need to do is to hold on to this truth, 16.7. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. And this is for us, and and for us, New City, I mean, as we read that text, I hope now uh, the pennies dropped, right? This this doesn't sound strange to us anymore, right? We know precisely where our Lord is going with this. How is it good for the disciples if if Jesus actually physically leaves them? It's because 16.7b, unless I go away via the cross, the advocate, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go via the cross, via the resurrection, I will send him to you. And this is where we might want to zoom out a bit on the map and see that bigger picture of salvation, God's timeline of salvation. Jesus is telling his disciples, and later on the Spirit is going to teach them this. The kingdom of God needs to be inaugurated. It will be inaugurated. The new covenant age needs to begin. It will begin that age characterized by the power of the Spirit as prophesied in Old Testament Scripture, that that entirely new age with new power and a new relationship between God and His covenant people. The age of the new covenant needs to dawn, the eternal covenant, the eschatological, last times covenant. It's right at the door. It's almost here. But, experientially, all the blessings of the new covenant Turn on Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and Jesus' exaltation to the Father's right hand in glory. Brothers and sisters, our Lord's death and exaltation to the Father's right hand in glory and the gift of the Holy Spirit are linked. They're linked. The Apostle Peter makes this crystal clear in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, doesn't he? But he's just repeating what Jesus said here a month and a half before. Verse 7, Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the paraclete will not come to you, but if I go via the cross, I will send him to you. So here's a, a theological thought experiment, Christian. In which period of salvation history would you rather live? And let's say you can't have it both ways, all right? I mean, one generation actually did have it both ways. (laughs) But would you rather be walking with Jesus in Galilee, in the flesh, right? Sitting under his wise teaching, witnessing his miracles, God incarnate. Or living as a Christian today. After Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus insists, and this this holds true, if we're Christians living in northern India, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, or Paris, France, it's much better to be alive now, after the coming of the Spirit. Much, much better. Beloved, we're so, so privileged. Just read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews gives all sorts of reasons why the new covenant is a better covenant with a better sacrifice and a better eternal high priest ministering in a better heavenly temple. But consider this. Before the triumphant inbreaking of God's saving reign, before the inauguration of the new covenant, millions of people ignored the claims of the true God. Even amongst the covenant nation of Israel itself. But that changed after Pentecost. Millions and millions and millions have since bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that takes us to verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world, the, the moral order and rebellion against God to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness, and judgment. That is, the world's estimation of what sin is. 
what true righteousness is, what judgment is. He's going to prove the world wrong about all those things. So let's look at the first, each in turn. But first, the Holy Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. Jesus means the paraclete will drive home that deep personal conviction in the individual's heart and mind. If you're sitting here right now and you're feeling convicted of your sin, you're seeing the need of a Savior, the need of the cross, the power of Christ to save you. That is the spirit at work in your heart right now. As the prosecuting attorney paraclete, he will bring the defendant to see the perilous condition in which they stand. There will be self-conscious recognition of personal guilt, of rebellion against the Creator God. That is one of the Spirit's functions in Jesus' absence. He brings conviction of sin to this unbelieving world. Verse 9, about sin, because people do not believe in me. Yet again, notice that close connection between the Spirit's mission and shining a spotlight on Jesus. The Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong about sin because people don't believe in Jesus. Because the people of the world don't believe in Jesus, they don't accept his teaching, they don't believe his claims, nor do they adopt his assessment of them, which means they don't turn to Jesus for salvation. Why would they? They don't even discern their need for Jesus. Therefore, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts them of their sin. If he didn't, then there's no way any person who's part of the world could ever break free from the chains of the world and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus would simply not be an option because he wouldn't be believed. Do you see? People who believe in Jesus believe what he says about their guilt. And then they turn to him. Simply put, the Spirit's convicting work graciously enables the world to recognize that they are sinners and that they need a Savior. Through this process, they turn to believe in Jesus and stop being the world. What else does the Spirit do? Verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about righteousness. That is, what the world believes to be righteousness, even if God judges it to be unrighteousness. Because until a person satisfied with their own righteousness, perceives its inadequacy, its self-centeredness, its shortcomings, its infinite imperfections. In other words, until a person is convicted of their own righteousness in exactly the same way that they're convicted of their sin, the gospel of Jesus Christ will not be received for the good news that it is. But Jesus says the paraclete will convict the world of its righteousness. He will prove the world to be wrong with what it thinks constitutes righteousness. Verse 10, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no more, no longer. That role of the prosecuting attorney of the world, that used to be Jesus' job, right? But now, because Jesus is returning to the Father, the Holy Spirit takes over that ministry. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. That is, the world's estimation of what sin is, what true righteousness is, and all false judgment. The Spirit will prove the world to be wrong in all its fundamental assessment of all things spiritual, but primarily its judgment of Jesus' person, of Jesus' teaching, and of Jesus' work. Because unless sinners come to grips with their false judgments of spiritual reality, how can they ever come to savingly know Jesus Christ? It's impossible. If the Holy Spirit doesn't enlighten false judgment and illumine dark minds and grant life, then Jesus and his gospel 
will be dismissed. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 11, about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Carson helpfully notes, the judgment of which the spirit convicts the world is its multifaceted spiritual blindness supremely displayed in its treatment of Jesus. Earlier, in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus had exhorted the world, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Jesus' judgment is true and righteous. The world's judgment is profoundly wrong and morally perverse. And now the paraclete convicts the world of its false judgment. Because in the impending triumph of Christ on Calvary's hill, the prince of this world, the devil, stands condemned. All false judgment is related to him who was a liar from the beginning. The devil, Satan, whose children we are if we echo his values. But if he stands condemned, if Satan stands condemned by the triumph of Jesus' cross, then the false judgment of those who follow in his train is doubly exposed. And brothers and sisters, this is where we come in. The need for conviction of this false view of sin, righteousness, and judgment is so, so urgent. The world is condemned already and in desperate need to learn of its plight. New City, these texts that we've been considering today, they do more than explain something of the Spirit's operation in this world. We need to take this truth now and let it foster confidence in our hearts, confidence as we face our God-given responsibility to witness to Jesus Christ in this fallen world. Christian, do you ever look at your family or your place of work or your school, your apartment building, your neighborhood, and wonder how you can ever persuade people to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you ever wonder how you can begin to penetrate that satanic wall of unbelief, the hard-hearted rebellion that you meet each day, the absolute dismissal of the gospel? What did the disciples do following Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven? These fishermen, these peasants who were about to take the gospel into all the Roman Empire, they did what Jesus told them to do. They waited for the Spirit. And when the paraclete came, he transformed them. He gave them holy power. The Holy Spirit used them to testify to Jesus and to bring Jesus glory. And full of the Spirit, they went out into all the world, and the church of Jesus Christ was established. Acts 14.48 And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now we must go, beloved, and do likewise. Amen.